This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, I speak with Glenn Carl, a former agent in the CIA who spent 23 years in the clandestine services. He understands what the process is like for the whistleblower in the Ukraine scandal, who was named by the New York Times as also being a CIA agent. Carl will share his insights about President Trump and what is likely to happen next. And I'll talk about why baseball is still my favorite sport, despite the league's many efforts to ruin the game. And now, the Nexus. Glenn Carl served 23 years in the clandestine services of the Central Intelligence Agency, working in a number of overseas posts on four continents and in Washington, D.C., Carl has worked on terrorism issues at various times since the mid-1980s, including Balkan, Central American, and European political, security, and economic issues. His last position was as Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats on the National Intelligence Council, where his office was responsible for strategic analysis of terrorism, international organized crime, and narcotics issues. Carl is author of The Interrogator and Education from 2011 and is a professor at Boston College. Glenn Carl, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you for having me. Let's get to what's on everyone's mind. You were an agent for the CIA and the whistleblower in the Ukraine scandal evidently works for the CIA. Based on your knowledge, what level is he at and what position might he have? Yeah, well, it sounds um, pretty a, a pretty standard kind of assignment for um, a CIA officer, a pretty standard detail uh, position, which mean, although relatively senior, the um, executive office of the president, the National Security Council, uh, and the White House, which are three um, overlapping sets, but but each one is is distinct actually, uh, all will have detail ease from the national security establishment or the or various parts of the government, uh, professionals on one subject or another uh, who serve as uh, staff directors or assistants for a, a geographical or functional uh, subject. That's, those are the, um, the, these people are the heart and soul of the National Security Council. So what we hear in the press is that um, the whistleblower was an expert on Ukraine and apparently from the CIA. So the odds are uh, that he's a detailee or she uh, from the CIA who would be um, given over, although formally remaining a, a CIA officer, the full-time job of the person is to work as a White House or Executive Office or National Security Council um, staff officer with uh, subst- you know, truly substantive uh, responsibilities for area expertise, and, and then policy recommendations and implementation coordination. So I'm pretty confident that's the profile. And how high up in the chain of command is this person, do you think? Well, it depends which, um, what framework we want to you know, define it in. You know, if you work in the White House, you're pretty, you're pretty senior mm-hmm. since that's the top of the entire United States government. So... Um, Typically, let's take the, the most famous of recent decades uh, staffer like this, which would, have, which would be then Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. This is in the mid-1980s during President Reagan's uh, years. 
And so a lieutenant colonel is a, you know, that's a significant rank, but it's not a general. Uh, and yet, uh, a lieutenant colonel from the Marine Corps serving in the National Security Council would be making policy and issuing instructions, really, interacting with and coordinating the whole national security establishment to include the Department of Defense. So, you know, it's a very substantive, very significant position, uh, but a, a staff person on the NSC will report to a political uh, person for the final decisions, usually. Okay. Well, some have been critical of the whistleblower that he received his information secondhand. Are there grounds to that criticism? No, it's nonsense. You know, this is this is the sputterings of people who have nothing substantive to say in defense of someone caught red-handed. It's like saying, well, you know, my hand might be in the cookie jar, but, you know, your shoes aren't polished. I mean, this is as silly as that. Um, so secondhand information... Uh, if, as, as it has um, been presented in the memorandum and it has been substantiated subsequently by various uh, media investigations, was um, multiple sourced. So this individual said, I don't know how many people he cited or she, but cited uh, numerous people uh, with concordant reports of specific events. Um, now, on top of that, uh, it's all been substantiated down to the iota um, by directly the president himself. So <laughs> the, the fact that um, the flailing Republicans trying to defend the man with his hand in the cookie jar um, <laughs> uh, is, you know, it would be laughable were it not a constitutional and substantive crisis uh, of historic proportions. And it is. Yes, that's uh there's no question there's a crisis going on at the moment. I mean, can you, can you walk me through how this whistleblower might have composed and circulated this complaint? I think there's a lot of confusion out there as to how just the nuts and bolts of how this even came together. Well, the, the remarkable, there, there are so many remarkable aspects to this specific story and, and to the truly uh, unique in American history, worst in American history crisis that we are living through. Um, but this, this individual, through um, performing his or her, we need a pronoun that, that is gender neutral, but that will come. Um, I, I will just uh, interject. I have read news reports saying it is a, a male. Okay. Yeah. So th this uh, person, uh, through conduct of his uh, professional functions, uh, learned um, multiple times uh, about the shocking, uh, clearly illegal, substantively alarming, dangerous for national security, uh, personally enriching uh, behavior on the part of the president in this specific phone call, at the least. We'll just restrict it to the phone call for now with the president of Ukraine. And he thought, well, what do I do? And or what? Because one is obliged to report illegal activity, but the, the crisis here, uh, truly for this fellow, is that the uh, person is the head of the United States government. Right. So the standard channel would be you go to your superior, but the superior is part of the chain of command, which goes directly to the president. So that's, that's not on. Then the government, the CIA, 
And most, uh, I'm sure all agencies of the federal government, just like most er any organization, uh, has an inspector general um, uh, office uh, expressly uh, designed to conduct inspections of the entity outside of the normal, normal chain of command to make sure that um, everyone is obeying the rules and uh, to provide a, a venue, a mechanism for an individual to report uh, instances of wrongdoing, whether it's, you know, Glenn is um, morally um, compromised or is stealing money or is a traitor, whatever it is that is wrong. Uh, this provides a channel for someone to uh, report it in a way that protects the individual, doesn't uh, go immediately back to the uh, the alleged uh, perpetrators of the of the wrongdoing, and so that things can be independently investigated, and then appropriate uh, remedial steps taken. That's it's a classic thing. So that's what this fellow uh, did, and then um, the inspector general, although a Trump appointee, um, conducted his you know, he, he performed his part of the uh, process. He, he did his, his duty, which is to look into the matter as objectively uh, as, as he can. And he, um, by all accounts, substantiated or found um, so convincing, so believable, that it, it merited the, uh, I forget the term of art, but this urgent attention, which is like mm. the highest level critical, uh, take, please take note, you know, headline. Uh, in the process, then we come in. So everything up to there is the way the system is designed to uh, ensure justice, protect uh, whistleblowers from retribution, individuals from retribution, and so on. Um, the crisis for us is that um, what then normally happens is that this report is referred to the Department of Justice because that's the law enforcement supreme instance of the land. And the crisis is that the attorney general uh, is uh, basically in the bag or is a bag man for the president. And right. rather than rather than um, carrying out his legally mandated responsibilities, uh, he is acted as an advocate and a protector of the man accused. Right. So this is the crisis in our system. Is, and I've been talking about this in public and not writing about it enough, but I have been writing about it too, for the years of our Trump drama, which is what do you do? How can you serve uh, someone who is betraying uh, the Constitution? Your oath is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And yet, if you fulfill your oath by functioning in the uh, process, the normal processes, you betray it because you are serving someone who uh, cannot... Uh, is not fulfilling it. So that creates an existential crisis. Where do you turn? Now, th this fellow did everything by the book, and it would have been suppressed, as so many other things in the last several years have been, uh, were it not for the um, honorable, uh, more than honorable, uh, cour you know, courageous, but the right, it should simply be straightforward, the right thing to do done by the Inspector General, who, when he learned that the Department of Justice was sitting on and quashing uh, what he uh, viewed and what the uh, whistleblower uh, considered a, an issue of grave national security danger, uh, he then um, 
followed up, protested, and informed Congress, the other co-equal uh, branch of government, which has oversight responsibilities, that uh, there was a significant report of urgent immediate concern that was being suppressed. And only that act has brought this to the light of day. Yeah, let's get into that for a second. I've been, you know, again, a lot of what I'm talking to you about is are things that have been brought up by, I guess, the Republicans or the president that are sort of gaining some credence, even if they're completely false. And one of the things I think is false, but I was curious your your take on it is, was there any kind of issue with the whistleblower going to Adam Schiff's committee to get guidance? Is that wrong? Is that right? Does it matter? What, what's yeah, your- as I understand it, well, no, I mean, that's, that's yet another, uh, you know, egregious slur unrelated to the truth. But you know, all, all effective slurs will have some, you know, you learn to lie. I mean, we take courses in lying in the CIA because it's part of our job. And, you know, the best lies are, are those that are based on truth. So that you always are a kernel of truth. And the truth appears to be, uh, and I might be a, a little fuzzy on the details, but the, the gist of this will be correct, uh, that because the whistleblower's um, uh, report, we'll call it report, and uh, had been, was being uh, suppressed, and because the system was not uh, functioning as it, as it is uh, supposed to legally, uh, the inspector general, I believe, um, I don't think it was the whistleblower. I think it was the inspector general um, uh, informed the oversight committees uh, that there was a grave matter of concern uh, that had not been passed on as by law, by law, it is supposed to be within seven days. And he said two things, it seems. One, you should know that this has occurred or what has or has not occurred as it, as it must by law. And two, what do I do about this? And it was only then when another branch of government um, with some independent uh, agency, the agency as in ability to act, um, took uh, steps to say, well, what's going on? That's not in the least gaming the system. Adam Schiff is this garbage uh, assertion by a foolish president has been, you know, that he wrote the uh, report. Um, <laughs> what it is is an appropriate action to to address uh, a breach of the law and one's professional obligations by uh, frankly the attorney general and only and then the response of uh, the chairman of the committee Adam Schiff and and I don't know about the senate but uh, at least by the house uh, was to uh, inquire and about this uh, supposed report and to demand that the law be followed and that the report be passed on that's it. That is everything done by the book according to the law, the way it should happen. The only ones in unhappy are those uh, who are the ones who have uh, now openly acknowledged committing, frankly, a crime. Yes. And you brought up the law a, a second ago. I mean, were you there in the CIA before the whistleblower law was put into place to protect those in the intelligence community who had sensitive information like this? I think the answer is yes. Um, I don't know for certain. I, I, you know, we. Uh, I don't remember ever having been briefed on here are the legal protections and procedures that one has. 
uh, we did have the Inspector General uh, of the CIA and, and the Inspector General of the um, Office of Director of National Intelligence and that process. Um, so I don't, as I've watched this unfold, you know, from outside the government now, this is the one we're living now, it hasn't struck me as substantively different from how um, one would try to address a problem when I was working, although procedurally it may well be. Um, I, I think that there are more formal protections now legally than there were uh, when I was working, uh, but I think the dilemmas for an individual and the, more or less the steps one uh, could contemplate are basically the same. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, I know that it, things have gotten more formalized over time, and uh, but I don't think it's been a, a dramatic difference. But I wanted to shift gears a second and just ask point blank, is Donald Trump a patriot? Well, the simple answer is no. Um, and you can, we can assess this uh, in, at multiple levels, and each of them will concord with the other. You know, he has no particular beliefs except in himself. Uh, he has no real knowledge about any international issue or, or um, issue of the functioning of government and the, uh, the way uh, our system should be woven into and shaped by, determined by, the Constitution. Uh, neither the letter nor the spirit of, uh, of the law or what it is to be a, a uh, public servant. And the president is simply a public servant. Um, so on that level, uh, clearly, uh, he's, let's, he's at the very least, you know, amoral and ignorant. Um, but it's quite clear, quite clear that, um, I think one can say almost literally every policy that he has advocated, certainly in international relations and, and beyond international policy, um, has been to the detriment of longstanding frankly, bipartisan U.S. policy positions. And more alarmingly, and to make it more clear, has come directly out of the Kremlin. There's not been one, one policy initiative that has, has differed, frankly. So, um, no. I mean, what, and in the instances when he, he does have beliefs and has acted in, in, I think, sincere pursuit of his beliefs, which I can respect more than total cynicism, um, they're, they aren't only wrongheaded, but they are, um, over time, calamitous in every single instance. Specific examples are, you know, I, I worked for years in trade policy and, you know, the, the trade positions. I'm no friend of China. China deserves to, um, have, be pressured and, and brought to the table so that uh, they don't uh, steal our intellectual property. Absolutely. But a trade war, declaring a trade war is easy to win is simply a moronic statement. Um, and then the way it's conducted is uh, utterly incompetent. Uh, and that's one example. What's happening with the Kurds in Syria? What's happening with the Russian position in Syria? What's happening with regard to the JPCOA, which is the Iranian nuclear agreement? Um, what's happening in uh, with respect to Ukraine, with respect to Central Europe, with respect to NATO, with respect to the European Union, with respect to the United Kingdom, with respect to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with respect to North Korean nuclear proliferation issues? And I've just started. Every single one of them um, is detrimental to the United States, the positions he has taken. Not, not just a debate. This is not, you know, I'm in favor of abortion or I'm against. I respect people who, who uh, take both sides. They can be honorable, moral people trying to serve the nation. 
every single one of those instances is demonstrably against American interest and in favor, not only against American interest, but in favor or in support of, aligned with the positions that Moscow would advocate. So I need to probe that further. So are you saying that the president has been working during his presidency directly for the Russians? I've been on record saying that, that, you know, I can't prove it. I do not know firsthand. Uh, if anyone knew firsthand, he would now be in the clink. Um, uh, but um, objectively, you know, if something walks one way and talks one way, it is one way. Um, it's, it seems quite clear to me. And the associations, uh, no, that's, I'll put it more precisely. It's indisputable. It is documented that the uh, Russian intelligence service, its surrogates, or people who report to and through the Kremlin, uh, have uh, took their first interest in Donald Trump in 1978. Huh. Why? Why then? Ah, well, uh, that's a good question, which many most people uh, people frequently frequently ask because you know who was he at that time? He's a playboy with money uh, going to Studio 54, <laughs> um, which for younger listeners was the hot uh, disco nightclub at a time when there were discos in <laughs> Manhattan early 1980s and late 1970s. Um, I don't know the equivalent today, but it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> showing my age. In, in any event, why would the Russians be interested in him, the Russian intelligence officer? Because you always want to know uh, people who have access to people of significance, one, and in particular, for the Russians, uh, someone who can help you, uh, this is of interest to Russians, not to American intelligence officers, uh, launder money and uh, and get access to the uh, American banking, financial, and economic systems. And he should certainly do all of the above at that time, unwittingly. And uh, and most, you know, you don't have to be a witting um, uh, cooperator of an intelligence service to be used by it at all. Uh, but they started in the 70s, and and uh, then they started cultivating uh, him. It seems pretty clear. And you never know. You know, the Russians are better than we uh, in in the following way as intelligence uh, operatives. They take a um, they can't afford. Well, they manage to take a much longer term approach to things, and they will put people or acquire people in uh, that put people in place or acquire people who have no particular use, possibly for many many years, but they carry them until maybe they do. Um, and you know, this one certainly did. Yeah, my assessment, you know, I do not have uh, a film showing him meeting with a handling officer. No, this is, you know, if that existed, it would have come out and it shouldn't exist. The Russians are no fools. They're outstanding intelligence, outstanding in, in intelligence. And and the way intelligence operations should be conducted is that they can be done in the open and you can't prove anything and you won't even know. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously you don't have proof in that way, but you do have decades in the intelligence community where you have studied this for a living and you understand this. So your words on this. Well, I'll give a couple of chill. examples. I'll give a couple of examples. You know, he sold uh, a, I forget the percentage, although it's a very, an ascertainable statistic, a substantial percentage of his, in, of the money that has gone through Trump uh, businesses over the last uh, two decades and, and actually three and more comes from Russian oligarchs. 
Russian oligarchs are um, frequently uh, Russian mafioso. Whether they are or not, the more relevant point is that no Russian oligarch will exist or can function with substantial investments overseas without the direct okay from the Kremlin, meaning for the last 20 years, Vladimir Putin. Right. And on top of that, Russia's, Russia consists, its power structure and government is a triad of the Russian government, uh, meaning the Kremlin and the FSB, which is their CIA, their intelligence service, um, uh, and the Russian oligarchs, those three. And they are basically inseparable, indissociable as a triad. So oligarch money is uh, invested in substantial amounts only with the okay of the Kremlin, meaning of Vladimir Putin. On top of that, you have, um, and a lot of these people are, are known thugs. They're people the FBI is not thugs, criminals, pursuing for years. Uh, he sold a house, Trump, Trump bought a house in Florida for $27 million, I think it was. Well, you know, good for him. And then he sold it quickly to a Russian oligarch for $97 million, who has never seen the house or spent a day in there. So why would someone buy a house he never uses for $70 million over market value? Well, it's to launder the money. Right. The Trump Tower in Toronto was going bankrupt, as most Trump properties have and businesses have. And I think it was the day before a 391, if I recall, million dollar, maybe $350 million um, uh, debt was to come due and default. A, uh, an immigrant to Canada from uh, Russia appeared and said, you know, this looks like a wonderful investment. I will guarantee the loan. Um, on and on and on. Same, same story. I mean, in your time in service and, and your perspective and all of that, have other presidents conducted foreign policy anywhere close to this? I mean, is this, no. is this they, something they, they, that Nixon did? We always hear about, you know, ah, Watergate right. and all of that. Yeah, well, I was a college student and a high school student during uh, Watergate, but I remember it very clearly. But I have said, you know, uh, it's, it's, I guess, obnoxious to quote oneself, and so I will prove yet again that I'm obnoxious maybe. But um, <laughs> if you'll indulge me, I'll quote myself. For when I've been saying to whoever will listen for several years that the United States is living the worst crisis at least since 1861, when our nation split in half, we massacred one another for four years. It's worse than Watergate. It being the, the current, the scandals and crises that we're living with the, with Donald Trump in office. Why? Because Richard Nixon was a crook. Absolutely. He abused the system. He actually did engage in foreign policy that caused American, Americans, um, to die and undermined American uh, policies before he became president because he didn't want, um, Johnson, President, then President Johnson to achieve a, a peace agreement. And so he, Nixon uh, threw a back channel to the North, North Vietnamese, basically sabotaged things. That's out, that's it's more than outrageous. That should be that's treasonous, it seems to me. But that's the one, excuse me, the one uh, exception. Watergate itself was the president breaking the law for personal political advantage. But he played and respected and tried to advance two things: one, American interests as he saw them, and two, um, his his personal political advantage. In this instance, uh, I ticked off probably 15 substantially important foreign policy issues, none of which uh, has really anything to do with American interests, and all of which have to do with the interests of a foreign power. And, and then you just have someone who has grotesquely abused the system 
in multiple ways that are impeachable. And Nixon didn't uh, do that. He wasn't he wasn't turning the White House into a uh, money making operation uh, explicitly. Hmm. Yeah, no, important thoughts. And um, it's uh, I guess it remains to be seen how this is going to play out in the near term. But you've outlined uh, a devastating portrait at the moment as to well, I, you know, I, I write for, um, my wife teases me, you know, our wives always know us better than, than we know ourselves and tell us unpleasant truths. So, you know, I, I write for Newsweek Japan, which is a wonderful, um, publication and well respected in Japan. But, you know, she says I've cornered the market probably on attitudes of the, uh, 12 Americans who read Japanese well enough and read Newsweek simultaneously. <laughs> um, Whereas you know, 320 million Americans don't know that I exist and wouldn't care if they did, most likely. But um, I just wrote um, a uh, a piece for um, my most recent column for for Newsweek, and and I I close it by saying you know, it's coming out I think this Saturday, and 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 so. It, literally, this is it's in front of me now, so indulge me. I said, alarmingly, whether Trump is successfully removed from office or survives to lie another day, the actions of the man in the White House and the Republicans supporting him have eroded and will continue to erode the foundations and the practices of American democracy. America will emerge from the Trump and the Republican-dominated years with, at best, a damaged government and lastingly wounded democracy. Impeachment is historically significant, but the forces that led to it are bit by bit undermining the idea, the social cohesion, and the success of America itself. Um, I have often said, and I and I know that people think that I'm this crazy alarmist, uh, but I goodness, you know, I come from uh, Boston and uh, and from a family of Republicans, so I don't think so. <laughs> um, that. Um, <laughs> America, we all have assumed that our democracy is different from anywhere else and that, oh, well, you know, these things that, that have brought other countries to chaos could never happen here because we're Americans. You know, those Germans, they couldn't hold their democracy. And look at the Venezuelans. Well, you know, of course, they're Venezuelans. It, you know, Venezuela was a, it wasn't the United States, but it was a prosperous, prospering, successful uh, democracy on the whole as recently as 15 years ago. It doesn't take long to uh, undermine the law, destroy the economy, and um, make people doubt each other enough so that the commons of debate, you know, the public commons is no longer trusted. Uh, hmm. it's, it's historically dangerous what's happening. Yes, it is. And let's leave it at that at the moment. Uh, and hopefully folks will read your column in Newsweek Japan it's a, and, or, and continue to look at your, your works um, moving forward. And uh, Glenn Carl, I appreciate your insights today and thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Anytime. My pleasure. And we will be right back. And now let's talk about something different. Let's talk baseball. It is the postseason, and as this is recorded, we are up to the League Championship Series. The New York Yankees are playing the Houston Astros, and the St. Louis Cardinals take on the Washington Nationals. 
a word about the Nationals, or the Nats as they are commonly known in these parts. The other night they scored one of the biggest come-from-behind victories I've ever seen in any sport. In do-or-die Game 5 against the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Nats were down 3 to nothing most of the game, and as late as the 8th inning were trailing 3-1. to one. The Dodgers were virtually tasting the champagne in the clubhouse, where the teams put up tarps over the lockers and donned space-age equipment to shield themselves from the spray of the bubbly everywhere. The Dodgers were that close. But then, the Nats hit two home runs in a row and tied up the game at three, and we went to extra innings. Still, I thought the superior Dodgers, who won a league-leading 106 wins in the regular season, would prevail. But no. In the 10th inning, the Nats hit a grand slam homer and crushed the Dodgers 7-3. They boarded the train to championship series glory. Never give up and never give in. That's the lesson to be learned from the extraordinary baseball game. For those who say baseball is boring or not worth watching, I point to games like this, a master class in strategy and tension. Baseball has changed an awful lot since I was a kid. And to me, none of it has been for the better. Am I being a curmudgeon in saying that? Perhaps. Since I was a child in the 1980s, baseball has added interleague play, a big mistake that destroys one of the things that was great about the game, that the National League and the American League only met in the World Series. Now, there's at least one interleague game every day. All this to boost ticket revenue. They also added the wild card to expand the playoffs and make more money for Major League Baseball. It works so well in football, the thinking goes, so let's have five teams from each league make the playoffs instead of two. Obviously, to many fans, the hockey or basketball example is what they like, where half the teams make the playoffs in a so-called second season. But from the 1800s, that was never what baseball was about. It was a different game with no clock and almost existing on an ethereal plane from yesteryear. Until they instituted the clock. Yes, it's subtle, but if you go to the ballpark in the last couple of years, a clock starts every time a batter steps out of the box, and if he violates the allotted time on the clock, he is penalized. I realize baseball games are long, but seeing a countdown clock in a major league ballpark is as sacrilegious as it comes. Add to that instant replay because, again, football, which makes so much money and baseball feels inferior to it. And now managers' challenges because, I don't need to fill in the blank here, baseball has had an identity crisis for quite some time. And yet, and yet, it is still the best sport out there. All of this tinkering with the externals of the game really haven't messed with the fundamentals of something that is essentially the same as it was in the early 20th century, the Nats victory solidified for me how much I love the sport, but I can name numerous examples over the years of games like this where I was transported by the pastoral landscape of the game. I may be a New York Mets fan, but if you better believe, I'm pulling for my Washington Nationals this playoff season. I'd love to see them face down the dreaded Yankees in the World Series and beat the pants off them. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Be well.